Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, October the 12th, 2022. Um, one of the frustrating things about talking about climate change is everyone claims they have the answer and everyone claims they're doing it. Earlier today, I talked with um, a senior person at PepsiCo, um, Maurizio uh, Puccini, who, uh, or Mora, Mora Puccini, has a new book out, The Human Side of Innovation. He was boasting about um, how PepsiCo is committed to fixing the environment because now they have recyclable Gatorade bottles. I'm sure that the goal there is very noble, but I can't imagine our climate crisis is going to get fixed by recyclable Gatorade bottles. So what are we going to do? How are we going to address the real truth of this? My guest today, uh, Bruce Usher, is a professor of Columbia at Columbia University. He's a professor of professional practice and an expert in the whole issue of what to do uh, about investing in the era of climate change. And indeed, he has a new book out today, Investing in the Era of Climate Change. And he's joining us. I'm thrilled from New York. Uh, Bruce, welcome. Uh, I don't want to bash uh, PepsiCo. I'm sure the intent is noble. But isn't that true that everyone claims to be fixing it one way or the other? Recyclables, electric vehicles, solar panels, and yet there's so much uncertainty about all this. I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, why are these companies doing this? PepsiCo and others are doing it. Let's hope for the right reasons because of climate change, but they're also doing it because their employees are pushing them to do it. Their customers, you know, it's a lot of research that shows that customers want to buy what they believe are sustainable products. Uh, they want to buy recycled Gatorade bottles uh, and investors are now pushing companies to do this because they see that's where the growth is, that's where the trends are. And then you have governments that are passing regulations to accelerate this. What's really changed, though, and where I am most interested in what's happening and why I wrote this book that just came out, as opposed to writing that book years ago when I got involved with climate change, is that we actually now do have technologies and products and business models that allow us to decarbonize our global economy without destroying it. So I started working on this, Andrew, 20 years ago. I first started investing in climate solutions. And look, at that time, solar energy, if you added up all the solar power on the planet that was harnessed, it generated less electricity than one coal-fired plant. Electric vehicles were kind of a joke, I mean, unless you counted golf carts. So there was nothing to invest in 20 years. We didn't have any good climate solutions 20 years ago. Fast forward to today, renewable energy which is cost competitive, it's the cheapest form of power on the planet today. Last year, more than 100 coal-fired plants worth of solar was built in one year alone. Renewable wind and solar are the cheapest forms of power. Electric vehicles are preferred by consumers. People who drive EVs love them because they're better cars. They handle better, they accelerate faster. Those two technologies together, if we implement those at scale globally, we get ourselves halfway addressing climate change. In other words, we reduce half of our emissions globally. And the other half, these are earlier stage technologies. They're not yet commercial, but they're in development. Some of them are pretty exciting, pretty interesting investment opportunities. So I see a lot of interesting opportunities here. 
uh, a lot more than just recyclable bottles. This whole issue of a, a zero carbon future, we had a show a couple of years ago with Chris Goodall, what we need to now, what we need to do now for a, a zero carbon future is the criteria there. If we want to quantify fixing climate, does it need to be done in terms of carbon or are there other metrics, other analytical ways of making sense of this, Bruce? No, I think it's in terms of carbon. I mean, if we step back and say, why, why do we have a problem? We have a problem because we spent 300 years with the Industrial Revolution, Agricultural Revolution, building a global economy that is truly awfully impressive, Andrew. I mean, most people in the world today have enough food to eat and then some and a place to live. And Too much. That's the problem, Bruce. Much, exactly. We, we've, 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 we've created something extraordinary. You know, the average person on the planet today is 50 times as well off economically as they were pre-industrial revolution but there was a catch right the catch was in that process we spewed emissions greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere and it's pretty clear that if we don't reduce those we are going to have a massive problem the, the temperature will go up dramatically and there's a lot of knock-on effects of those and then it, it our, our economic situation let alone our, our living situation will get pretty poor at that point so we've got 30, 30 years, maybe 50 years at the outside, let's say 30 to 50 years to reverse what we did in 300 years. And that's no simple task. So is this a controversial number, 30 to 50 years? We've had environmentalists, some more radical than others, suggesting we've only got five or 10 years to save the planet. How are you determining this 30 to 50 year window? Bruce? Yeah, well, first of all, let me say that I'm not the expert, <laughs> but I do believe in I do believe in experts. I do believe in climate scientists here at Columbia. We've We've got a very deep bench of, of climate science. And the math isn't that complex. We know what's in the atmosphere, which know what's going into the atmosphere every year. In fact, there's virtually no uh, argument around that. The question is, how much time do we have to remove that? And the people who say, look, we got five to 10 years, or we're all going to die. Um, that's not correct. What they're saying is, if we don't start reducing emissions significantly in the next five or 10 years, we'll never get it within 30. And then there's some truth to that. But here's, here's what people don't seem to understand very widely. In many countries of the world, we're already doing that. U.S. emissions. Now, the U.S. has not been a leader when it comes to climate change. U.S. greenhouse gas emissions peaked in 2007, right? We're already on a decarbonization path. Most European countries uh, have decarbonized much more aggressively than us. The Germans are down 40%. And so, and, and with economic growth, I mean, the U.S. economy has grown dramatically since 2007. So we are already on decarbonization path. That doesn't mean we don't have a big challenge. The challenge is we have to decarbonize globally. That includes China, India, you know, every, every, well, and, and there's, I mean, and that it introduces this whole issue of international protocols, Kyoto, Glasgow, and Paris, so on and so forth. you Columbia University colleague, Charles Sable, I'm sure you're familiar with his co-authored book, Fixing the Climate Stretches for an Uncertain World, seems to think that these international protocols offer a great deal of potential for addressing the crisis. What's your take on that? Should we rely no. on what Breta called the, the blah, blah of Glasgow and Kyoto? No, no, no. And I wish we could, Andrew. Honestly, I wish we could just say, you know, we're all going to come together and fix this problem. We're, 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 we're good for that. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because as humans, we don't work together that well. We don't work together that well outside of our, our 
personal communities, let alone our national boundaries. And that's a challenge. It would be a lot easier, cheaper, faster if we just all cooperated and did it. But, you know, th this is this is human nature. We, 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 we don't cooperate on the global pandemic of COVID. And that was a heck of a lot more urgent to tackle quickly than climate change. We don't cooperate around a lot of other great challenges of the planet, like war and hunger. So we're not going to all solve this together. That's the bad news. The good news is we don't have to. We should, but we don't have to. And the reason we don't have to is what I said a few moments ago. We have the technologies now to start decarbonizing very rapidly. And the important thing about these technologies is that they're what we call substitutes. It's economists call substitutes. In other words, how do you get people to emit less greenhouse gases? You can tell them you're being a bad person, emit less. You're going to tell them we're going to we're going to tax you, we're going to tax your carbon emissions, and, and they'll emit less. But at the end of the day, the only thing that gets people to emit less is if, if you give them a substitute that's equal or better than what they have today. So like, so, it, uh, like electric cars. Like electric cars, right? Now, electric cars are not a perfect substitute yet because they're still more expensive. Right? Be, when, when they get cheaper than gasoline cars, then it's really game over for an internal question. And they will be cheaper within a couple of years. But today, they actually are still a, a great substitute because they're a better product. People are willing to pay more because they love the You can't, you know, the, the flying out the showrooms, can't get them. With renewables, solar and wind, it's not about it being a better product. It's a cheaper product. And most people get solar panels or wind because it's cheaper. Yeah, they're happy. They're happy to address climate change. That's great. It makes them feel good. But the main reason they make the decision is it's about saving money. But with solar and wind, it does require an investment from your point of view as an economist thinking rationally. It, it's cheaper. But if you need to put 20, 30, 50 grand up front, it's not. It's not, but you don't have to because there are so many companies out there right. willing to do it for nothing and, you know, over over a period of time. But this you is very encouraging. You're cheering me up on a Wednesday <laughs> afternoon, Bruce. Let's address this. You know, we've done so many shows on this and we get so many different takes. We had Howard Walk, who used to work in the uh, in the Clinton administration. He has a new book out, Launchpad Republic, suggesting that America's entrepreneurial age can fix the environment and i'm guessing you're in the same camp we also did a show with bob keith who mm -hmm. has a new book out climate climate nomics washington wall street and the economic bottle battle not bottle battle to save our planet they both essentially argue that this can come through america's entrepreneurial edge are you in that camp you're an investor and a professor so you see it from a number of different perspectives yeah so some you know I don't like when people say I'm an optimist or others are a pessimist because at the end of the day, all I believe is I'm a realist. I mean, I'm an investor. I look at the numbers. I look at the statistics. I look what's going on with climate change. I look and you're an investor in particular in Greenbacker, right? Um, uh, that's one of many companies, many, many yeah. businesses. But I am I am on the investment committee of one of Greenbacker's funds, which invests in renewable energy developers. Where'd you get all your money from? You're a professor. professor <laughs> well, I'm a professor of practice. You read my title. So I was, I was in business for many years. I was in Wall Street for many years. I worked in Tokyo and then New York and uh, eventually ended up running a company that invests in climate change projects. So I've, 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 uh, I've worked uh, in finance for a long time. But here's the thing. I'm optimistic in the sense, because that's what people say when they read my book. They, they, they conclude it's optimistic because we do have these products. We have these innovations. We have the capital. So I mentioned, you know, years ago, we didn't have any products. We also didn't have much capital 
first time I tried to raise investment, you know, capital for for, for this uh, for the first projects I was involved with, it was it was unbelievably hard. The capital is now available. Many of the products are there. The innovation is very real. I, I do think uh, innovation is not just American innovation, though America is pretty good at it. Um, this does make a big difference. Here's what I'm worried about. I'm, I'm and, and I'm not I'm not at any moment saying, oh, problem solved. We have a huge challenge ahead of us. What I worry about is that we spent 300 years building everything as is now. We got to rebuild it all. And we got to rebuild in 30 years. We have most technologies. We have the capital. But try building stuff today. Try building stuff in America. Try building a wind farm, a solar farm. Try building in infrastructure for charging your automobile. And it's not unique to America. Many countries in the world today, it takes years to get permitting to line things up. People don't want change. And when there's change, and I always say to my students, climate change is two words. The change part is really hard. People are just really slow to change, even when you give them a better product. That's what worries me. It's not, can we solve this problem? I'm just a little worried, like, you know, do we have the will to really get the job done? Um, yeah, I, I want to talk about government involved in this, but what about some of these almost magical sounding fixes, Bruce, like being, I know the Icelanders are developing technology or experimenting with technology that allows us to bury carbonous. Sure. Is there still a possibility that we will come up with technology that will once and for all fix all this? Or is that again, wishful thinking? I don't think there's a holy grail here. You know, tell it, 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 there's not, there's not probably because our emissions are coming from so many different sources and there's so many different ways to address this. Do I think there's some pretty exciting, potentially game-changing technologies out there? Yeah. Green hydrogen, direct air capture. These are, these are amazing today. They're not economic. They're, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't say this is this, this is one of the key solutions, but I would have said the same thing about solar in the past. We're the same thing about wind. And the fact that we've got the price points and the scale, it's not just about low cost, but also the massive scale. The fact that we've gotten there is, is honestly, I, I, it's almost miraculous. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against several more similar technologies being developed in this couple of decades. Uh, you know, as, as where are the most promising areas? Where are you seeing? Because you're an early investor, I'm assuming. Yeah, the, the, one, the, one, that's, uh, the one that's, there's, there's a, energy storage is, is pretty interesting. Oh, I think it's getting at scale at this point. It's becoming less interesting. The, one, the two areas that are really exciting, and I do write this about this in the book, one is green hydrogen. So I started writing the book two years ago. Green hydrogen is, is, is producing hydrogen using renewable energy. When I started running it two years ago, I was going to put in a chapter called Over the Horizon. Like these are things that investors should, should think about that one day you might be able to invest in this. Yeah. It's happened so fast. They've been getting the price points down and developing projects that I actually moved it into the main part of the book because I'm like, wow, this opportunity is here today. Now, it's still not commercial. It's still too costly. It still doesn't have the infrastructure we need. But the potential for green hydrogen, decarbonize industrial applications, industrial heating, steel, uh, heavy trucks, things like this, very, very interesting potential what are the 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 government models for you i mean biden of course has his historic climate bill which is controversial but i'm assuming encouraging yeah. the chinese are much more aggressive in terms of a centralized authoritarian approach to this what yeah. governments in particular from your point of view in terms of uh, investing in the era of climate change what are doing the right things which governments well, so I do think what the U.S. did with the Inflation Reduction Act 
is 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 a tremendously uh, good piece of legislation, and and I'm not always a big fan of of, <laughs> of regulations or subsidies. I, I tell you why it's good because it's extremely targeted, and 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 there's the the funding that's in there is targeted technologies to do a very clear thing, which is to get them to the point to grow those industries enough so that they start to get scale. And as they get scale, the price point gets driven down. As the price point gets driven down, it accelerates demand and you get this virtuous cycle going. That's exactly what will happen in wind and solar. Wind thanks to, frankly, German subsidies. Solar thanks more to Chinese subsidies. It's happened in electric vehicles thanks to uh, more here in the U.S. driving down the cost of lithium-ion batteries. And now we're going to try to do it again in green hydrogen and direct air capture, carbon capture and storage and other technologies and building out the infrastructure for electric vehicles and, and renewables. So I think it's a targeted piece of legislation. It's a great piece of legislation. And I think it's going to uh, take what's already very successful industries and, and really take them to the next level. But what is missing and is a separate piece of legislation. I don't know if it's going to happen. And it's specific to what we need to do here in the U.S. in particular is legislation not to put more regulations, but to deregulate and to deregulate in places to accelerate the, the, the building of these low carbon solutions. Uh, there is some discussion in Congress to, to do exactly that. Essentially, the federal government will mandate, it will essentially overrule local community rules or state rules that frankly slow down the ability to build things. And that's super controversial. That's obviously, you know, if you're in a community, you don't want a wind farm next to you that, that might upset you. But as a nation, and frankly, as, as a global, global community, we got to build this stuff. Um, so that's, you know, I think there's an element of deregulation that needs to come with us. What about the arguments by progressives in particular that healing the environment really requires a more structural approach to economic inequality? One guest I had a couple of years ago, Lucas Chancel, French economist, has a new book out, Unsustainable Inequalities. Do you think that we sometimes make an error in broadening the discussion about the environment so that it, it covers the nature of capitalism too? I, I think we do. And I actually have a strong opinion about this. And I don't think it's a popular opinion. But my experience... I like unpopular opinion. <laughs> We can start talking about ESG too. That all gets into all sorts of interesting territory when we get to that. If we have time, um, you know, my and, and this is from my experience in the, in, in the business side when I was when I was in business and finance um, before joining uh, uh, the Columbia. Um, if you have multiple objectives for for a business, it will always have to default to one over the other. There's always going to be attention and a trade off, and that's not to say that the challenges we face, for example, inequality, or you know, climate justice, or environmental justice. These are real issues. And I believe that these are real issues. And I believe that these issues should be addressed. But if you try to address climate change and try to address these issues at the same time in the same piece of legislation or through the same mechanism, the same company, or the same business, uh, you will likely fail at both. Or what I tell my students, perfect is the enemy of the good. And I wish it weren't so. But that's that's the case. So I think you need to be very clear about different objectives to do different things. Back to the example, Andrew, you mentioned, and again, I'm not harshing on PepsiCo here because I think actually Pepsi does some pretty good stuff on the environmental side. No, you can batch. You're allowed to batch. <laughs> but you know, recycling bottles. I prefer dying. Anyway. Recycling plastic is 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 absolutely good for the environment because plastic is is a waste. That's 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 you know, it's it's visually wasteful. 
I mean, it's harmful visually. It, 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 it's, it's bad for the environment. It's bad for wildlife. There's a lot of things about plastic that are, that are bad. But plastic doesn't have a whole lot to do with climate change. That's the, just the reality. It's a consequence rather than a cause, are you saying? Pretty much, exactly. So recycle, and put it another way, if you want to recycle and we want to recycle laws to recycle, we get trashed off the streets. We should have laws and, and business models that encourage recycling. I absolutely support that. But if you want to address climate change, you need different business models and things. And, and don't, don't confuse these two because it's, it's misleading. What about nature itself? We've done many shows on this. Tony Hiss, prominent American envi environmentalist, believes that to rescue the planet, we need to literally give half the land back to nature, no development. Uh, and then John Reed, another guest actually from Northern California, up the road from me, believes that we need to save big forests if we're to save the planet. Now, we're not going to save big forests through just solar, wind, or lithium batteries. Do we need a more aggressive policy when it comes to nature itself, Bruce? I think we do. I think, uh, you know, we, we have to understand why, why do we cut down trees, right? Let's understand that first, and then we can talk about the solution. We cut down trees for economic reasons. You cut down trees because either you need the wood, but more often because you need the land. You need the land for plant crops, for grazing, sometimes for other forms of development. That's why people cut down trees. They don't do it for fun. So how do you stop them cutting down trees? You need to form, provide other forms of economic development. Just protecting a bunch of nature uh, doesn't help if they're going to go you know, graze their animals somewhere else and just cut down another forest. We need to think much more economically. We need to think you know, through a business lens. How do you make a tree more valuable standing than cut down? And there are ways to do that, for example, through carbon credits and markets like that, through more uh, efficient agriculture, not just sustainable agriculture, making agriculture more, more efficient so that you can use less land. There's a lot of controversy around things like GMOs and use of fertilizers. And mm -hmm. again, don't know how you feel about those topics. You may have, you know, people. No, I'm very curious as to your take. I mean, I, I've got friends who run all sorts of innovative agricultural businesses. Um, we've done a, a number of shows on the idea of regenerative economics, the donut economics. We yeah. had George Monbiat on the show, who argues that we need to fundamentally alter our eating habits and farming habits if we're to save the planet. I mean, do, would you invest, for example, in uh, regenerative farming and technology. Oh, absolutely. Ag, ag tech, to just put that category there, is, is very interesting because, um, you know, again, a lot, a lot of that industry is, is using older, older ways of doing things that are both polluting and not terribly efficient. We need to produce more food on less land. What we don't think works is telling people you got to eat less meat because it's good for the planet. They're not going to do that. They've been eating meat for 200 years, 1,000 years, how long we, we've been around. What is a good investment is companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, some of their products taste really good and people like them. They like them because they're healthier. They like the way they taste. And every year they get a little better because they get more clever about it. There's a lot of interesting technologies out there to, to farm more efficiently, to get more crops. On the yeah, I mean, what do you, have you invested in any urban farming technologies? Yeah, or? urban farming is really interesting. The, the, the challenge with urban farming today, and I have looked at some urban farms here just outside New York City, um, you know, they're not cost competitive yet. I think they're getting there as the cost of electricity comes down and the cost of LEDs has come down a lot. It's still it's still a tough model to work. But I, 
I think at some point they, they make the economics that work. Again, great example, right? Urban farming, vertical farming. If you can produce really tasty food at a better price or the same price, but it tastes better, people are going to buy it. And that's how you're going to reduce emissions. That's how we're going to address climate change. Have we missed anything, Bruce? Um, I know you've got to run in a minute. You've got a class to teach. I mean, you, we've talked about solar, wind, lithium batteries, private enterprise versus government, international protocols, farming. What other areas do you cover in the book we haven't talked about briefly? I think the, I think the last area I want to cover is, is just the, the, the narrative that's out there around climate change today. It's, it's an either or. Either you believe in it and you th- believe in it so much you think we're doomed and people talk about not having children or you deny it, we can't address it, it's not a problem, or it's going to destroy our economy. And neither of these narratives is in any way helpful, I believe, because first of all, that's not the way it is. And secondly, if you follow either of those narratives, you get to the same place, which is doing nothing, giving up or not bothering. And that both will lead us to a disaster and also is is you know, <laughs> really a shame because the reality is that we can address climate change, which by which I mean we can avoid a cat- catastrophic climate change. I mean, it seems as if people, particularly on the left, want to believe almost in the apocalypse. I'm not saying everybody, but there is a almost a religious fatalism amongst some. There is a fatalism. There's, there's a growing trend of defeatists. And I would say the denialists and the defeatists to me are equally frustrating from where I sit and, and not helpful. Well, it's a really, really important conversation and a very encouraging one, Bruce. So many of our shows are miserable about one thing or other, but you actually cheered me up on a Wednesday afternoon. Finally, people are going to be watching this. They they need to read your new book, um, uh, Investing in the Era of Climate Change, so they can spend $30 on that. But what else can people be doing in terms of helping with this? Is it getting an EV? Is it yeah, I think it matters, but that's not for most people. I think especially, you know, people watching your show, what uh, what they do personally matters. If they really want to have impact, it's through their work. If you work for a business, if you work for the government, if you work for a nonprofit, the work you're doing, Andrew, getting the message out on these topics, letting people understand what, what the truth is here, the reality has way more impact. What people do through their work is far more impactful on climate change than their personal decisions. Personal decisions is about your values. You know, you want to live your values and that's really important, but that's not really going to change climate change. Do we have the VC infrastructure for this? I mean, I've done, I'm in Silicon Valley, so I know a lot of tech VCs. Uh, more and more VCs are focusing on this. Are you happy yeah. about the infrastructure for money? Yeah, I- you're, you're an investor yourself. Yeah, I am. You know, VCs lost a lot of money in the sector back in 2007, eight. I write about that in the book. I think they realize that this is, you know, some of these sectors just don't fit their model very well. They've gotten a lot clever about it, a lot more educated around what's where they can invest and where, where they where they should avoid. Where they avoid is more the territory of, of corporate VC or or uh, high net worth impact in, investors. Um, I think the VC community has really gotten behind this. Yeah. No, it's good stuff. And it's all about telling the story. We've done a number of shows on telling the story of climate change. This is a much more nuanced, moderate conversation or narrative about it. And I, I think it's um, it's certainly an important conversation. And I'm encouraged. I, I want to believe what you say, Bruce. I, <laughs> I trust you. I'm not sure um, I well, have the knowledge, but hopefully you do. Uh, so congratulations on the new book, uh, Investing in the Era of Climate Change. As I said, I know you have to run off. But what other books would you suggest people read, particularly about the environment? Because there are so many books out there and so many of them, as you've 
yeah. suggested are misleading, are exaggerated, or apocalyptic. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, if you want to read a book that's, I think, highly informative, beautifully written, and um, is just a great book. It's, it's, it's not a new one. It's Elizabeth Colbert's The Sixth Extinction. Mm, that's After a good book. But that's quite book. dark in its own way. It's dark, but, um, you know, I think what the takeaway there is, yeah, as humans, we really have, we really do change the world. We really are living in the in the era of the, with the era of the Anthropocene. We've actually been doing it for a long time now. And I, I think it's important to understand, you know, who we are and what we do. Um, more and more in the line of, you know, what can you do about it? I do think Bill Gates' new book is, is uh, mm. I think it's a very, he's done a, a, a very good job there. Uh, different perspective of mine in some ways, but in some ways are very complimentary. And I, I, I think it's very well done.